Welcome to Recovery Corner, where the many pathways of recovery intersect. We believe that recovery should be defined by each individual on their own unique journey. We also welcome allies of recovery to the conversation as we know that substance use disorder impacts our entire communities, not only the people experiencing addiction. This is a space where you will hear personal stories of triumph in recovery, gain insights into various recovery-oriented systems, and learn how leaders across the country are building recovery-ready communities. Recovery Corner is brought to you by Young People in Recovery, otherwise known as YPR. YPR is a recovery support service organization that engages people in and seeking recovery, as well as allies of the recovery movement to take a stand for recovery. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Recovery Corner. I am your host, Candice Rose, and I would love to welcome today's guest. We have Julie Salter on the show today. Welcome, Julie. Hi. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Just so y'all know, uh, Julie is a health coach and entrepreneur and so much more. Uh, Julie's really a prime example of a Phoenix who's risen from the ashes. You know, after spending some time in prison, she's taken the reins of her life and has created a pretty incredible future for herself. So I'm so excited for all of our listeners to hear your story, Julie, um, you know, kind of where you were headed and how you've turned it around. So I want to kind of start off though and ask a little bit about who you are today. So for our listeners, can you just tell us who the woman you are today is? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, so I run, so I'm Julie Salter and I run a seven figure multi-level marketing business right now. And I'm also a certified personal trainer and a nutrition coach where I teach women about um, health and fitness goals. And I kind of help kind of think about it. I kind of help women from like the bedroom to the gym because my (laughs) multi-level marketing business is also is based around uh, sexual health and wellness. And kind of, we, we kind of have products for a woman from the moment she, or people that identify as a woman who, when they wake up in the morning to when they, when the lights go down. And then of course my personal training and nutrition certifications help them and all the other body goals that they might, they might be having. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I took a peek at the website. Uh, the organization you work for is called pure romance, uh, really well put together website. You know, I think a lot of people hear, you know, about these companies and maybe have, I mean, myself included, I'm just going to say it. Like I had these kind of ideas in my head of what it looked like, but uh, it's really like wellness centered and super classy. Like I, I was impressed. So I think that's super cool. And everything that you do is just really centered in wellness and, and female empowerment, which is so cool. Um, so yeah, and you've had a lot of success in it. So, uh, I want to hear more about that. Uh, we'll get into that a little later though. Um, but as I kind of mentioned, as I was introducing you, uh, prior to stepping into all this success that you're in, uh, you had, you had some challenges in life as a young woman. Uh, so since this is recovery corner, uh, I want to dig into that a little bit. So, um, let's just kind of, I don't know, wherever you feel like the start is, you know, um, I want to hear how you 
how you kind of got into substance use, where it started and what it was and where it led you. Absolutely. So my substance use actually started way before any of my legal problems, we'll call them. So I'm a firm believer that weed is a gateway drug. And Mm. that started when I was in high school. And then it graduated to cocaine and then from cocaine into methamphetamines. And that's kind of where the majority of my journey led me was using and selling methamphetamines on the streets, as people call it, as I used to call it. I mean, I guess it is still the streets, but that when it things started to get kind of crazy for me, I was living in Boise, Idaho in 2009. And that year is kind of like the, the marking moment of the extreme journey down addiction use and, and substance abuse and addiction. I ended up catching three felonies and five misdemeanors that year. And I had a completely clean record besides maybe like a seatbelt ticket before that. And I caught, yeah, I caught quite a few charges that year. So it was 2009. You said 2009 was pretty rough. (laughs) Oh, wow. And how how old were you at the time? I believe I was about 23. So early twenties, 23 with three felonies. Wow. Thinking back on that now is just bananas. Cause I mean, I I just was chatting with a 25 year old last night and I'm like, Oh my God, you're a baby. (laughs) Oh, I was a baby. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. There's a lot you don't know at that age or a lot you think that, you know, that is completely wrong. (laughs) Right. Life. Yeah. Yeah. That's big time. I mean, uh, knowing a little bit about what you do now and the success you've had though, and, and then kind of, getting into that lifestyle and having all those charges at 23, you kind of seem like you're a go big or go home kind of, kind of gal. (laughs) (laughs) It's an understatement. (laughs) Uh, Yes. I, I do have obsessive tendencies and if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it really big, really hard all the way. way. And it's just, I make a choice and that choice isn't always the right choice. Yeah. And, but I just choose. And in that time in my life, I definitely chose drugs and running and slinging and using and getting other people high. And that was just, that was the choice that I had made. And I loved my choice in the moment. Like I, I loved the adrenaline of it. I loved the running around. I loved the secrecy of it. I, I was addicted to the lifestyle as well as the drug itself, which realistically was probably even worse because I, I had like this secret life away from work because I was still holding down a full-time job and like running department stores (laughs) while I was after work, staying up all night and never sleeping and running the streets and wow, slinging dope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is it's, it's a, it's a counterculture, the whole, yeah, every, you know, just being in that lifestyle, uh, using substances. And then even further when you're actually like a source of those substances, um, for lack of a better word, like you, you kind of become this counterculture celebrity because everybody wants to know you where you are and how to stay connected. Um, that's absolutely true. Absolutely. Another part of the addiction is I knew that I was wanted, uh, mm-hmm. wherever I went or whoever I was with, like, they wanted me to be there. And 
obviously looking back on it now, it wasn't me that they wanted. It was what I had in my pocket <laughs> or purse or right. wherever I was stashing the situation. But it was that feeling of being wanted that I think was also a really big driver into the choices that I made at the time. Yeah. hundred percent. I could, I could see that. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't have, uh, I, I was a tumbleweed. I couldn't have, <laughs> I couldn't have kept that stuff. I would have done it all. <laughs> that would have been too hard for me. I would have been like losing money, owing people money. I would have probably gotten myself into some pretty deep water. Um, but I could understand the appeal for sure. Um, but I, so I want to ask, like, so you were 23 when you got all these charges, like how old were you when, when, in, I mean, you said you're in Boise, Idaho and it all really took hold. So like, how old were you? And then, yeah, what kind of, what led to these charges and what were these charges and, and then where did that put you? Yeah. So the, the craziest part about this story is the charge that I actually went to prison for was it originally a misdemeanor charge. So to make a really long story, a little bit more podcast friendly <laughs> in, in 2009, I was hanging out with a friend of mine and we didn't have any drugs. And so we were drinking and we were not really drinkers when we were using. So alcohol kind of hit us a little bit hard and it was about 2 a.m. in this apartment complex. And the people in the apartment complex were like, you guys have to go. And we're like, oh, okay. So we go down to my car and I was like, I can't drive because we were drinking Jaeger. And my friend who I was with at the time, he was like, well, I'll, let's just sit in your car and we'll just turn the car on. Cause it was like February and it was cold. And he's like, I'll just turn the car on and I'll sit in the driver's seat and we can just take a nap or whatever. Well, we both woke up in the car with the car running to the cops knocking on the window. No. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it was like the people in the apartment complex or like who decided to call the cops or if it was all just like this plan to get us arrested. I'm not sure. So we get out of the vehicle and my friend gets a DUI because he was in the driver's seat. And I had um, one of my many talents is blowing glass. I, I learned how to blow glass and I mean, silver lining. I did learn a couple of things right. in, my, in my journey. That's cool though. Do you still do any of that? No, because it's a trigger. It's definitely a trigger. Ah. Yeah. So, um, so I had all of this brand new, all these brand new pipes that I had blown because I was that drug dealer that really wanted good customer service for my clients. <laughs> I was oh like, gosh. okay, here, here's your bag. Here's your bag of dope. Do you want a new pipe with that? It's only an extra $5. Cause I would get a rod of glass about four feet long and cut them into little, you know, four inch pieces and make $5 on each one. Like any way that I can hustle, I'm going to hustle. Right. So <laughs> So I had all this brand new glass and torches and, and tips and whatnot. And so the cops confiscated that and gave me a misdemeanor paraphernalia charge. So I get searched at the crime scene. I get searched again before we even get like arrested into the cop car. And we're in separate cars. And then I get searched again as soon as I get out of the cop car because they searched to see if I dropped anything in the car or whatever. So at this point, I'd been searched three times. And then I'm sitting, I'm sitting in booking and I'm wearing like these cargo pants, with like Etni sneakers. Right. And they it call was a 1990. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. My like, I don't know how to skateboard. Like what was I? <laughs> so I, I'm in 
booking and I'm, I'm standing there and they call my name and I've watched this video footage because they gave it to me on a CD. <laughs> they burned, oh they burned the, the footage onto a CD for me. And I remember it like it was yesterday. They called my name. You see me look and there's no audio on this, on the CD. You see me look up, I stand up and you know, when your pants are like kind of caught on your shoe wrong. And so you like, you shake your foot to try to mm-hmm. fix your pants. Well, I shake my foot and then you see me throw my hands up and back up and you see a couple of cops like run to an area that was, I mean, but the booking area was super small. Mm-hmm. You see them come into the camera, they sweep something up and then they run out of the, of the, of the frame. Right. Hmm. And at my first, and I didn't think anything of it. Cause like I'd been searched three times. I knew I didn't have any drugs because we were drinking. Like there was like, I, I didn't drop anything. And at mm-hmm. my first court date, they said, you dropped a dirty pipe in booking. We swept it up off the floor and scraped it in our lab. And there was methamphetamines and we're upgrading your misdemeanor to a felony charge. And I said, what? So that was the first charge. Everything else, all the other countless arrests after that, all of that stuff, besides like the misdemeanors, I'm talking about like the other felonies. Uh-huh. Those aren't even the reason why I, I went to prison. They sent me to prison for that upgraded misdemeanor charge, which. Because they scraped residue. Like it wasn't even. It was, I mean, it you was, to, yeah. You would have had to work really hard to like get any effects from that. Is that not also. Like that, not only that, like I'd have to work really hard to somehow have it not be found by three different officers and then shake it down my pant leg and booking to drop on the, like it, it's not real. It's not real. And my public defender, I'm sure he did his best. And that's all a person can ask of somebody is to do their best. But that was the charge that ended up sending me to prison. And they gave me the maximum sentence for that possession charge. So there's a, I mean, as far as you, like, this isn't yours. <laughs> no, no, wow. I did not. Yeah. Which is the crate. Now the pair, all the, the clean pipes, though, absolutely. Like I earned mm-hmm. that paraphernalia charge and mind you, I earned the other charges <laughs> that were right. later on. Like I'm certainly not innocent by any means, but I certainly did not drop a dirty pipe in the Ada County jails booking room and kick it across the floor and shatter it so they could sweep it up and scrape it for residue. Right. Like, that's so preposterous in my brain. However, <laughs> I did not have a hired lawyer um, to fight that. I had a public defender, which I'm sure he did his best. So, yeah. Gosh, you're just a kid. It's just, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that that's a felony. I mean, like, Idaho is yours or not like in Idaho in 2009 if you had residue in a pipe like that's a felony that's in what planet is like that going to help I mean that's that's do you know if the laws have changed in Idaho no I haven't lived there since June 30th 2010 I visited because I still do have some friends that were not in that circle of people that I was running around with in 2009 um they were people that I grew up with so I'll go I go visit them but Mm -hmm. even even just visiting Idaho I and I really realized it on like my last two trips that I went, there's just some areas that just give me anxiety and it's just driving through 
the areas. And I'm like, man, I'm so glad that I left after prison. Cause I don't know. I don't know what my story would be if I would have stayed even in that area. So leaving, leaving was the best, best thing that I could have done. Right. Oh man. Well, so, okay. So this bullshit charge, uh, this happens. Um, that was February. Um, and then so, uh, the felon, like, so did they release you while you were awaiting your hearing or yeah. How did, cause then you picked up some more charges. How did this all happen? Yeah. Yeah. So in February, because I had no priors at all. And because when I originally went into booking, it was just a misdemeanor. It was really easy for me to bond out. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It might've been like a couple hundred bucks or whatever to get out of jail on that misdemeanor charge. And then, uh, when I went to court and they upgraded it to a felony, they didn't like throw me back in jail and make me rebond out. So I was already out, but I was still not, not a single thing changed in my world. Like, Oh, I had this charge and whatever, but I had a clean record before that and whatever, whatever. Fast forward to June. And at this point I still had that pending charge that just kept going to court and going to court and yada, yada, yada. And I wasn't just like taking the charge. I was trying to fight it. Mind you, while I was still running around and doing all the things I shouldn't be doing. And June came along and this guy asked me to pick up an ounce of dope. And when I say dope, I'm always talking about meth. Pick up an ounce of dope. And I was like, yeah, man, I got you. Don't worry. Like, I'll let you know. I'll let you know when I have it. And I was with the female who I was actually getting it from. And her and I were just messing around and driving around and we were going shopping and whatever. We were just hanging out and we were definitely, were not on anybody else's time restraints except for our own. And I remember we went into this like secondhand store and we're looking at stuff and her and I walk out, uh, out of the store to my car. And this guy is like blowing up my phone, trying to get this ounce. And I'm like, man, I'll let you know when I'm ready. Like you're on, you're on my clock, buddy. And I remember glancing to the right and I saw this white unmarked van backed into a parking spot, almost right at the front doors of the store. And I just glanced and I remember two guys sitting in the front seat and just being like, oh, like they're there. Couldn't remember any other vehicle in the parking lot, but a white unmarked van. I was like, oh, look at that. But no no flags went off in my brain, which is shocking to me. (laughs) And I get in the car and she's in the passenger seat and I put my purse like behind the center console. Um, and I get out onto the street and I'm driving and I was going to take a left down a street. And at the last minute I was like, mm, no, I want to go straight instead. And boom, they, a cop was right behind me and I didn't see it. And they pulled me over for an illegal lane change because mm. I was like almost at the intersection, but I wasn't And whatever they could do to get me pulled over. Right. And my criminal brain always says, don't pull over on the side of the street. That's how your car gets towed, pull over into a parking lot. <laughs> so yeah. I pull over into a parking lot and in my purse in the back seat, I had um, a teen or a dope. So it was like a couple grams mm-hmm. of my personal stuff. We hadn't even picked up the ounce yet. Like that's where we were heading. And I pull into this parking lot and almost before I even park the car, <laughs> there is now four cop cars. Um, one cop is behind me in the parking lot out of his vehicle screaming, put my hands outside of the car, put my hands outside of the car. I'm like, dude, what's your problem, bro? Yeah. (laughs) Totally clueless of like what's actually going down here. There was three other doing more than illegal lane changes is what's going on. (laughs) They knew. I didn't know that they knew. (laughs) 
So they, he's telling me like, get my hands out of the car, open the door from the outside back up to him. She, the girl that was with me, she also is now out of the vehicle with another officer. They handcuff me and they stick me in the cop car. And I go, why, why am, why, what are you doing? Like, why am I arrested? And they never told me I watched one of the other three cop cars. One of them was a canine unit and it was a, it was June. It was hot. So our, my windows were down on, on my Nissan Maxima. And I watched this cop walk up with his dog and it wasn't like the dog walked around the car and smelled something and like gave a signal. The cop snapped his fingers and pointed at the wind at my driver's side window that was rolled down. And the cop just, or the dog cop dog just goes whoop right into my window, rummaging around on the interior of my car, spilling like my big gulp Mountain Dew soda, like making causing havoc. <laughs> right. And my, they, it was so abrupt me getting out of the vehicle. I had left my purse in the behind the center. So they hit on the purse and the girl that was with me had a little bit of weed. Of course, when weed was not legal. <laughs> had right. a little bit of weed. So still at this point, my car is now in the parking lot. Dude is driving me. Now we're leaving the scene and I still have not been told what's going on, why I'm arrested, why I'm, I'm arrested or anything like that. And we drive to this facility that I'd never seen before. And at that point, I lived in Boise for almost about three years. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen this facility. And it was all surrounded with a fence. And we go behind the fence and it's all cop cars. I'm like, what kind of like, are we at the FBI? Like, what's happening here? <laughs> and they put me into an interrogation room. And I still haven't been told why I'm arrested or been read my rights or anything. And they just shut me in this room for about... It, what felt like two hours. And I say that because I know that I fell asleep and I woke up and I was like singing songs because the ceilings were really tall. And then I hear the door open and these two gentlemen come walking in and they put chairs down in front of me. And I'm like, what's up guys? (laughs) And they go, all right, well, we're going to be arresting you on possession with intent to deliver today because the guy that was asking for the ounce of dope was actually working for the cops. And there was an investigation that had been going on for about three weeks that I was completely unaware of. And that was that arrest, but the cops got trigger happy and pulled the trigger too soon and pulled me over too soon. And I didn't have the ounce of dope on me. So in interrogation, they're like, well, you know, you can leave here today. You can walk out of here today. If you just tell us what we want to know, because we know you're the kingpin of the area. And I'm like laughing. So I'm like, <laughs> Dude, I, I was getting it from her. Of course I didn't say that, but I was like, right. what? <laughs> like what's happening. And they're like, Oh, if you want to tell us what we want to know, you can walk out of here today. And this is like the most gangster moment of my life and excuse my language. But <laughs> I remember I crossed my legs like a lady. And I said, you want me to tell on people? And I go, you both can get Fuck. <laughs> I gave them both a bird and nice. they looked at me like a confused puppy dog, like, <laughs> I go, yeah, take me to jail. And I said, where's my lawyer? And at that point they took me to jail. I still did not know what my charge was getting booked into jail again. <laughs> Never yes, had been they read were telling right. you They were telling you intent to distribute, but what, it, what was in your purse again? How much did you have in your purse? Only personal use, only enough for personal use. So it wasn't an ounce. I had like a gram and a half. So they, but they had told you that they were going to arrest you for intent to distribute. You didn't even have anything on you. Correct. So they booked me with possession with intent to deliver. And in Idaho, that holds a life sentence. (laughs) Like they are hard on controlled substances. Yes. So now I'm sitting here, 23, looking at two felony charges. One holds a life sentence. 
I'm like, what? And the judge can only see like, he didn't even look at like that. I had another pending charge. He just saw that I had a completely clean record. So he only put a $10,000 bond on this crazy charge. So my parents ended up bonding me out of jail. I get out. I keep doing all the stuff I'm going to do. They had confiscated my car. Like it was like a whole, this whole situation. And then about two months after going back and forth with the police, all of a sudden that one of the detectives calls me and he goes, meet me at the gas station. And I go, what, how do you know where I'm at? He's like, you're at your apartment. Meet me at the gas station. I'm like, what? And so I walk about two and a half blocks to this gas station down in garden city, Idaho. And he's got my Nissan Maxima and this long yellow sheet of paper. And he goes, sign here. And I go, what's going on? He's like, you're getting your car back sign here. And I was like, oh, because they didn't find anything in my car. They were expecting to confiscate my car and find this ounce of dope that they pulled the trigger on and they just didn't find anything. So I get my car back. Um, So that was my June charge. And then my charge in November, which was another felony charge, was I was taking these guys home from the bar after we were playing pool and they were both felons and they were both packing pistols. And when I got pulled over for my tags being expired, because they were still following me, the cops were still following me at that point. I got, and it was like two in the morning. I got pulled over again and I didn't have any drugs on me, but the two guys that I was giving a ride did, and they dropped their drugs in my car and I got a third felony charge and they were never even searched. They were able to walk and they immediately arrested me. My arm was broken at the time because I got into a fight and a girl hit me with pool stick cracked my dude yeah 2009 was rough it was really yeah rough. sounds like it so like this was in a sling and then they handcuffed this one to my back belt loop and took me to jail on a third possession of a controlled substance charge in 2009 and because my other two charges were still pending the judge just did another ten thousand dollar bond instead of it being like some crazy amount so i ended up bonding out again and then december 29th 2009 i went to court and um I argued to get two of my felonies dropped and only take one. And my public defender started the conversation was like, they're never going to go for that. And I go, well, you're going to go pitch it to them. And this is just like, for anybody that needs to hear this, always advocate for yourself because not taking two, they were like, we can get you two felonies and drop one. I was like, no, you're going to drop two and I'll take one. And I'm so glad that I fought that day because my public defender walked back in and they were like, I can't believe they took that deal. So they gave me, I have one possession, um, possession of a controlled substance. They gave me the maximum sentence for that, which was seven years. And remind you, it was the, the misdemeanor paraphernalia charge that they gave me seven years for. And the, which isn't even yours. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I'm just like in my mind right now too. I'm like, the first one was bullshit. Second one was bullshit. I mean, the third one seems to be the only one that held any weight just because of the, what was in your, even though it wasn't yours Mine was in the car. Like that seems like the only one to me that would have held any weight, but like, yeah. Wow. And for me to take, for me to do that deal, I had to agree to do a program called a writer program. And of course, anybody in Idaho listening to this will, will know exactly what program I'm talking about. You go to a facility for six months of your fixed time. So I got two years fixed, five years indeterminate. So six months of my two years, I went to this facility where they do, I, I do like the program. I like, I went through it. I, I think it is a good program for people that are really trying to change their ways, which I was like, 
December 29th, when I got hand, I got handcuffed in the courtroom and they were like, you're not getting out this time. I was like, and I'm done. <laughs> like like literally the run. day that you went to jail, you were like, that's it. Over it. I, this is where it landed me. They told me like, you're not getting out after this. There's no, like you have no bond. You're wow. this is it. And before that December 29th, which is also my sobriety date, uh, before that I had slept through by accident two court dates and I had so many. Yeah. And so I had so many court dates. So I remember my mom calling me up one morning and she was like, what are you doing? Like, cause it was their bond that I had skipped on. Oh, right. So, yeah. So the bondsman called my parents and said, we're going to charge you $50 an hour to find your daughter. And so my mom calls me and my mom is not the type of person to scream or yell. So when she was like yelling at me on the phone, I was like, I slept through it. I'm really sorry. Like I wasn't trying, I'm not trying to run. And so I remember calling the bondsman and it was the, the beginning of December. I, I want to say it was like December 9th for some reason that's sticking in my head. And I called him. I was like, Hey, my name is Julie Salter. I was supposed to have court this morning. I honest to God, I slept through it because I was staying up all the time. I was doing all these drugs. I wasn't even sleeping. So of course I'm going to eventually your body just shuts down. Right. And I said, I said, my next court date is December 29th. I would really just like, if I could stay out for Christmas. And he said, I trust you. And he didn't, he's like, I'm not going to charge you. You better be at that court date on December 29th. And I was like, oh my God, I could not believe the bondsman was like, we just pinged your phone. We're going to come find you, you know? So he was like, all right, you better be in court. And I was like, okay. And I remember the day that I had court that day, I had two, two people that I had been hanging out with and using with. And I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I know I'm going to get arrested. I have two felony warrants out for my arrest because I missed those court dates. Like, and they were for being in the drug space that I was, I am so thankful for those two humans mm -hmm. going, you're not going to continue to do this to your life. Even though like they had been on that path and they were much older than me. And they're like, we will sit in court with you. Like wow. those are some awesome tweakers okay? <laughs> like, to sit in court and like, watch me go through that and be arrested and still be sitting there. And they were probably high, but to be that support that I needed just mm -hmm. in that moment, I'll remember them for the rest of my life. And to have that support saying like the, the right thing to do is to, to take care of this. And I'm so glad that, that I did. Wow. No, thanks for sharing that. I mean, it really, it helps. Yeah. Humanize people that are using drugs. Like Drug users aren't bad people. There's no. more often than not, there's a story that led us to these paths that why we are using the way that we're using. But like at the end of the day, like we're human and we have love for each other and compassion and, and want to see other people do, do well. So, uh, I mean, I, I can relate to that too. Some of my dearest friends that I've lost as a result of their addiction, like I've never, I can't say I've never, but, uh, at that point in my life, you know, like I'd never experienced love the way that I was loved by these people. And, um, you know, I miss them dearly every day. And a lot of people don't get it. Cause they're like, Oh, they were just, you know, they use derogatory terms to label them as, um, addicts. And, uh, I'm like, no, they're, they're people and they're awesome. <laughs> Even though they're right. not here anymore. So, um, I think that's really cool that they were able to help just encourage you to do the right thing. Cause yeah, most of us don't want to stay. Like we don't want to stay in these lives that we've built around addiction. You know, it's just, that's the nature of addiction. We get stuck in it. So I think uh, we're also super fearful of like 
A, people are afraid of change. People are more comfortable being uncomfortable than the the unknowing. And I didn't know what was going to happen when I went into that courtroom. Like I remember I was like, I went through my court date for the 29th and they were like, okay, sign your papers here. Your next court date is January 5th. And I'm like, oh my God, they're going to let me go. Like I have two felonies. And then I stood up and they're like, oh, Miss Salter, we see you have two felony warrants. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) they're like, we're going to take you into custody today. I'm like, I figured. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's hard, man. That's hard to get up and face the music like that. So, uh, and so you go in and they give you this charge of seven years, they take you in and you still have these other charges pending. So they take you into custody and then you got to go back. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so the fel- well, the felony charges, um, so they, when they took me into the cust- into custody on the 29th, I didn't get any of my sentencing until like January 5th. So it was, it was super close, but on the 5th is when they were like, okay, we'll drop two of your felonies. You'll take one. You're going to get seven years and you have to complete a writer program. And I was like, done. And I still have all the misdemeanor charges and the misdemeanor charges are like possession of marijuana, open container in the car. Um, I have a weapons charge because I used to collect knives and a little Kershaw two and a half inch pocket. I used to carry a pocket knife. Uh, they, they gave me a misdemeanor concealed weapon charge for that, which is really dumb in my, like I'm Idaho. Like everybody has a pocket knife. Wow. Um, you got all like, you got this goodie bag of charges. <laughs> yes, I do. All the good ones. Yeah. And um, then, uh, so then I did my, I did my writer program and then June 30th, I went back in front of my judge and my judge said that I completed a good program. And the writer program is, it's truly designed to not just sit you in a, in a bunk and have you sleeping 24 hours a day, like what, or like orange is a new black or that, (laughs) uh, like type of situation. It is, you get up at 6am, you have classes that you have to go to. Like I, the one class I had to do was called thinking for a change. God, I can't remember what I ate for breakfast, but I can remember the name of the class I took 12 years ago. (laughs) Well, that's and good that you made an impact. So absolutely, it absolutely made an impact. And like, if you had like um, a violent crime, you had to do anger management and so on and so forth. But I didn't have any wow. any violence in my crime, so I had to do like this thinking for a change. And I ended up doing like AA and NA and attended church and stuff. But I think a lot of that too was just to fill my time because after I got out, I I certainly did not complete a 12 step program. It was not, it just wasn't for me. And I don't think that there's any cookie cutter way to recovery or to get through. I don't believe that it's just one size fits all. So, and I did, um, so I did those classes and whatnot. And then when they released me June 30th, um, my parents put me on a plane back to Kodiak, Alaska, and that's where I did it's what's called an interstate compact. So Alaska to, agreed to take me on as a probationer and I was supervised out of Alaska. For, oh, wow. Is that yeah. where your, fa- your parents were, was in Alaska? Yeah, they're still there. So I grew up on Kodiak Island there and um, my parents still live there. So now I'm like 24. I'm living back at home with my parents. I'm a completely different human than the one that left when she was 19 left home at 19. Like I, I, and in, in prison in Idaho, there's no physical touch. So you no handshaking, no hugging, no hair braiding, anything that starts with an H. And (laughs) like, so I remember getting off. Was there hope? Was there at least some hope? (laughs) There's definitely hope. 
But there was, um, I got off the plane and my mom ran up to like hug me and I flinched away from her. And I think that was something that she had mentioned to me multiple times. She was like, I couldn't believe that. Like I would go to touch you or hug you and you would flinch away because that was what I was trained. And granted, I was only in prison for six months, but man, six months, shit, a habit happens after 21 days. <laughs> like you right. can create a habit after 21 days. So six months of standing in line with my hands behind my back, holding a plastic tray, man, real glass plates and silverware felt so heavy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right. Like the things wow. that you don't think about. Yeah. yeah well, so that's kind of crazy to me though. So you go into custody on December 29th um, and they tell you you have a seven year charge at this point. Were you like preparing for the whole seven years or most of it? So when they told me seven years, well, when they told me that I was getting seven years, it was, I, I already knew that I was going to be doing the writer program. And okay. so I knew it was going to be six months. What I was most concerned about was six and a half years of not messing up again is, is what my fear was because my ex fiance who I was dating right before everything happened in 2009, we had just broken up right prior to that. And that's when everything went awry. Mm -hmm. He had been to prison and he had done a writer program and he was on probation when we met. And I'll always feel some piece of guilt in my life and in my brain because when we met he was on probation from that writer program and in recovery and here i come along at my peak in addiction and i'm like oh you used to do drugs i have some basically and Mm. him and i went down this three and a half years ride or die hustling hustling dope and he well the whole time he was you know running and being sneaky on probation. So I already kind of knew what to expect. In right. a way, I was just more, I was fearful of what was going to happen. And so like going back to Alaska was the perfect thing, but man, I'll tell you what, if the universe wants to test you, it sure will. Within 72 hours of being back on Kodiak Island, I was on a job. I was working for a company, um, moving and packing houses and whatnot. Cause I had a friend of the family write a letter to my judge saying that I already had a job and yada, yada, which got the approval for me to even go to Alaska, back to Alaska on probation in the first place. And 72 hours, I was sitting there with a kid that I grew up from high school who was working for the company. And he pulls this meth pipe out of his pocket and he goes, Hey, do you want to hit? And I go, I told you, I just got out of prison for this. Right. And he goes, yeah. Do you want to hit? And I said, no. (laughs) Wow. I, like that was, that was my pass or fail from the universe or a higher power or whoever it was being like, you think you've changed. Let's, let's really see. And being able to, so at that point it was, it felt so easy to say no to it because I'd already made my choice. I had made mm-hmm. my choice that day that I got arrested, that I was done. <laughs> I was done. Right. There's nothing positive coming from me getting high. Plus I'm really results driven and being able to say that I had been clean for six months was a really good feel good for me. Mm-hmm. And like, sometimes now I'll have, I'll have, I don't want to call it a nightmare because it, it's not a nightmare, but I'll have dreams where I'm using and I'll, I'll wake up and I'll feel this guilt. Like, Oh, I can't say I've been clean for 12 years. And that's the piece that I don't want to lose is being able to say that, Hey, I'm, I'm, t- I've, I've been clean for 12 years. Uh, that like my, my dreams kind of test my test, test me on. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, we can't hide from that, you know, at a, at a certain point, like we have to know how to face it and, and 
stick to our guns and make our choices. So like, you know, you're talking about feeling guilt for being an influence um, in your ex's life. Like I, I can totally understand that, but you know, at the end of the day, it's their choice, you know? Yeah. I mean, just as you made a choice when that was put in your face. Um, so yeah, I think it's admirable to like have some accountability towards your influence, but you know, it's, that wasn't your decision. That was theirs. So thank you for that. That's like, nobody's ever said it said that that way to me. And that's, it's absolutely true. And I, I believe that everything that I do now in this life that I'm living, because I feel like that 2009 life was a movie that plays in my brain. I mean, let me, let me be frank. It was 2006 to 2009. So it was three years of running around. I just had a bad year in 2009. (laughs) Yeah. So there was definitely a lot, a lot of other things that happened in that time, but Girl, believe- 2006 to 2009 was a bad year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, two, yeah, it all, it all, it all ended in 2009, but right. yeah, I, it sounds I, like a movie. Like some of the stuff you've been like, that's been playing in my head. I'm like, Oh man, like this sounds like a movie. I'm like thinking of a scene where you like walk out and the van's out there and it's like Heather Locklear, you're Heather Locklear or something like that. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I was writing a book. I was writing a book about my journeys from, um, you know, from the big house to the boardroom because then I serve on the boardroom mm. romance. And there's been a couple of hiccups in that, in that story, but uh, I was also featured in another book that was written by the CEO of pure romance, which I definitely will plug his book because it's a really good book and it's called the secret is you. And he features Mm -hmm. consultants across the business who have had phenomenal stories. And I ended up being featured in in for one of his stories and a little snippet, just a little snippet of what I've done is there, but that's also a really great book because the secret is you, the secret is making a choice and and Mm -hmm. sticking, sticking to your guns and deciding. I think that's a lot of people that struggle with addiction and recovery and, and staying on the right path is they haven't made their choice yet. They just need to choose something and yeah. be confident in the choice that they're making. Yeah, I mean, that's the first step. Like there's definitely a lot more to it. And I think a lot of us have different privileges that a lot of people don't have that, you know, the choice, but you know, once you're determined in that choice, like you fight tooth and nail to, to figure out what we need to figure out to make sure that we are able to like, create these lives that we, that we want. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I watch, I watch people struggle all the time. Uh, just being uncertain of the unknown, like you said earlier, like you get comfortable in this discomfort and in the chaos, you know, and that's just like what, you know, I mean, I was talking to a friend earlier who's, you know, in a completely toxic relationship, you know, some of the things that this person's told me about what they're partner does and says to them, I'm just like, oh my gosh. Uh, also this person is completely still in that addicted mind. Um, and that's all they know. Um, so me, I'm working with this person to kind of encourage them into, uh, different lifestyles. Um, but it is like, I can remember, I can remember being uncertain where it was like my choice for recovery wasn't necessarily my own. It was like the people around me, Um, but I was about three months into my recovery when I lost one of my best friends, Jake. Um, and he was, uh, not the first close friend that I lost as a result of their addiction. And I just remember that that was, that was the make or break day. I was like, I am not (laughs) 
going to put my family and my friends through this. Um, and I want to be part of solution so that I can support my friends. Not, you know, I don't, I don't want to call my friend's mom again and have to tell her that her son died in my house, you know, like, um, so it's like, but I've got, I had more privilege. Like I had a, a boyfriend at the time who, um, he decided to quit drinking to support me. And then I didn't have alcohol and drugs at home. Not everybody has that, you know, their only option for a roof over their head might be living with friends or family uh, that actively use substances or their other option is to like be homeless and, you know, homeless communities band together. There's a lot of substance use uh, going on there. So it's like, I totally support the whole, like it's a choice, but some people need a little more support and like help just navigating resources and accessing resources um but if you yeah stick to your guns you you just got to find that there's a there's a man that comes to our recovery group every week he's amazing he's from baltimore he's got 27 years in recovery after 25 years on a needle you know and one of the things that he says that always sticks out to me is like no matter what you want to do in life there's a group of people out there that are going to support you. So if you Ah. choose, yeah, it's so true. Like if you choose, you want recovery, like you can, and you know, maybe you, maybe you need a little extra support finding resources or accessing them. Like there's a group of people out there that can help you or there's a group of people that can help you stay stuck. Yeah. This guy, like he's all, he's got the best one-liners. I think after 27 years, he's just we make a joke like we should write a like make a coffee table book called Chrisisms. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I should get him on the podcast because he's he's just he's a little more old school, you know. He's like sixty seven years old, something like that, and he's a, he's a little more old school. Maybe I'll get him on here though one day. But um, I think one of the, the one of the other things that you know, I was sitting in prison, and my parents were telling me like, "Oh, you know, we want you to come back home. We'll pay for you to come home." Blah blah blah, and. And I said, at first I was like, okay, I'll come home. And there's something about growing up on an Island in Alaska that when you leave the rock and you get off of the rock and you fail off of the rock, you don't want to have to go back to the rock of failure. And I felt like I had failed and Mm. it's such a small community. I mean, the entire Island is 13,000 people ish. And that's also including all the villages that you have to get to by boat or plane. So very small community of people and everybody knows everybody knows everybody's business. So to go back to that, a failure, not being able to survive out in the real world, growing up in such a small community like that was like a big hit to the pride for sure. But, and I almost didn't go, I almost didn't go. I remember crying on the freaking payphone in prison, just <laughs> crying to my mom, like, I don't want to go because I loved not living in Alaska, but I'm, I'm just really glad that they convinced me to come back. And I did not do perfect probation by any means. Like I never used, but I still had not necessarily the best mindset. I mean, I picked up a, a, a misdemeanor petty theft charge on a vacation in Washington state. So. Oh gosh. So that, that was a little ding in my situation. And then I was drinking too. Like drinking was never, I'd never viewed drinking as a problem for me. Like I, I alcohol was never my drug of choice. And so I was drinking and somebody called my probation or parole and like told on me and they ended up 
Oh, like asking me about it the next day. And I'm that person. If you ask me a question, I'm going to be honest with you. And they're like, where were you last night? I said, I was at the bar. And they said, well, were you drinking? I said, I, yeah, I had two martinis. And they're like, okay, well, we're arresting you today. And they almost sent me back to prison for that one. And I said, are you serious? And they're like, yeah, we're serious. You violated your probation. And I went and had to do a day in jail overnight in up in Alaska. And I was like, oh my God, I almost just like ruined this. And mind you, I was, I was the produce manager for a large chain grocery store at the time. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm like, I'm going to lose this. And I was making 20 bucks an hour. And, uh, I ended up getting, I missed an interview for a regional position with the company that next day, like the next day, but you know, that's the universe just stepping in because I, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I had not, you know, ended up getting arrested that day. And, after that, I was, I didn't drink for two years, which was the remainder of the, of my time on probation. And I still, I don't, now that I'm like in the health and fitness industry and really watching what I put in my body, I'm not, I'm not really drinking now anyways, but, mm-hmm. um, well, so let's, yeah, let's talk about that. Cause it's like, uh, I mean, it sounds like in your twenties, you were learning how to take care of yourself through hustling. And now, so you get out and you've made this choice that you don't want that lifestyle anymore. So yeah. How did you kind of come into what you're doing now? Yeah. So I was a produce manager for the grocery store, like I had mentioned, and I was doing my thing. I was still on probation. um, And a girlfriend of mine had came up to me one day and I cracked some inappropriate joke at work as I do just because I'm a comedian. (laughs) And she said that she just started doing toy parties. And I said, what is that? And she's like, you can make 40% of everything that you sell. And there's no contracts. You sign up. If you like it, you keep doing it. If you want to stop, you just stop. And I was like, well, what do I have to lose? I didn't have anything to lose. I was like, well, I'm going to buy this box of stuff. And if I suck at running a business, then I'll keep all the stuff. (laughs) And if I do really good, maybe I can quit my job and just do this because she told me she made $500 doing one party. And I was like, man, I have to work 50 hours in a week to make 800 bucks. Like (laughs) this looks like a way better option. So I ended up signing up to do that at the time it was called passion parties. And now we're pure romance uh, because passion parties uh, was bought out by pure romance in 2016. But Mm. this was August of 2014 and I signed up and my goal was to quit my job and my second calendar month in business, I ended up selling over $10,000 and being in the top five in sales in the company at the time. And I was like, Oh man, like this, I can really make this a thing. And then I was like, pedal to the metal. And it's funny because I I say it now, like if I ever knew I could sell adult products (laughs) legally, I never would have been hustling drugs because man, the money is good. (laughs) Oh, I mean, let's, let's be honest. I was a, a lot of my hustle with drugs was because it was supporting my high. Like I was getting high on my own supply, and then I was hustling and making a little bit of money. But I certainly wasn't making the type of money that I can make doing in-home parties for women on sexual health and bedroom accessories by any freaking means. So right. I, I made a choice, and I do like what I always do, and I put the pedal to the floor, and I went hard, and I was working. 40 to 60 hours a week as a produce manager, like at 5 a.m. in the produce department, throwing thousand pound pallets of potatoes, right? And it's like, it's definitely a 
a physical job. And then I would get off work. I'd go home. I'd learn everything I could. And then I would end up doing two to five parties a weekend. And I did that for a year straight without stopping. And then I remember walking in after a weekend of parties. I was like, I made three grand this weekend. I'm like, why am I clocking in here? This is so stupid. <laughs> I would make three grand in a month. And I'm like, I just made three grand in a weekend, like profit, like not, not sales profit. It was, it was crazy. And so I go, I think I'm going to quit my job. And, and I did July of 2015. So it was almost one, one year from starting um, that. And so I haven't been with a clock in clock out job since then. It's been glorious. I highly recommend it. <laughs> if you can, if you can own and operate your own business, I say do it because the freedom, the financial freedom and the scheduling freedom and being able to make my own hours and decide and live my life how I want to live it is, is definitely possible now because of that. And Pure Romance has been a fantastic vehicle for me. I mean, I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parties in, in my seven years of working with them. And then I have been on a health and fitness journey starting in January of 2020. And I've absolutely fell in love after hiring my first nutrition coach. And I fell in love with it so much. I decided to get certified as a personal trainer and a nutrition coach. So I got those certifications this last October. And then my nutrition, I got this February of 2021. And then I just launched my fitness business about three weeks ago, this August, and uh, I've got some one-on-one coaching clients and I'm helping people there too. So I'm, I'm realizing how much I'm enjoying just helping people in general. So then when you reached out to me to do this and I'm like, oh my God, is there more people that I can help with my story? And like, count me in. Okay. <laughs> I, I'd love to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's stories like this, like it's huge. I think we get so we get so wrapped up in where the world of addiction takes us. It feels like we're at the bottom of a pit that we can't climb out of. And then to be able to hear a story like yours that, you know, you made that choice and you did everything in your power to take action to like stay aligned with your choice. Um, and yeah, like I said, like some of us might need more support, but as long as you just stick with your choice, like through, through recovery, like I can say like anything is, anything's possible. I can't, I'm just like this, this episode isn't about me, but like, you know, I started volunteering with YPR back in 2017, just because there were programs around, but they didn't fit my niche. And I was like, well, let's build something different and was able to use YPR as a vehicle to sort of build a community. Um, and like, now I have this like full-time salary job and I get to do things like podcast and interview awesome people. And like, I am passionate about recovery and it's like, because I started out as a volunteer and just like kind of went, yeah, pedal to the metal with that. Like I've created this whole life. I joke sometimes. I'm like, I always knew my life was going to be centered around addiction. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> glad that I'm on this side of it now, you know, and like, yeah. Um, yeah. utilize platforms to help people. Yeah. Hear stories and, and, and hear hope. And um, yeah, I, I want to uh, like anybody that has a story and it, it took me a long time to be able to talk about it. And it not because I mean, I'm a, I'm a Scorpio. It's, it's a not, it's a notch on my belt. Like, Oh, look what I did. It's, it's just something that I've been through and I've gone through. And in a way I'm, I'm kind of proud of it. I mean, Jesus, I carried my prison ID around in my wallet to bust it out as a fun party trick because people like what? No way. And I'm like, yeah, here's my prison ID. <laughs> so it's all like scuffed and you can't even see it. Oh anymore. my gosh. Like my badge of honor that, that I, right. earned, you know, and Some people have like their like 
you know, uh, graduation certificates on the wall. Their certifications are all like, here's my prison ID. <laughs> right. Put that on the wall. I, I was so worried, like, especially because my, my, career had turned into going into people's homes and teaching them about, you know, sexual health and bedroom accessories. And I was so afraid for people to know my past because I'm in their, I'm in their home and people have their own opinions about people that are in the system or in recovery. And right. And it's crazy. Like the shock factor that I get out of people now, because now I've been I've been encouraged after sharing a little, little bits of my story. And then I ended up doing a speech, which landed me in the CEO of Pure Romance's book. I did that speech and the amount of people that reached out to me that were like, oh my God, thank you for sharing this. I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize that my story could be helping people, not something for me to like be hiding. And, and mm-hmm. now it's something that I definitely try to speak out more to, because it is a part of me and in, in my story. And and part of my success in a way, like, I think it makes me appreciate a lot of things. <laughs> it makes me appreciate right. things a lot differently. You know, I mean, I lost absolutely everything when I went to prison. I had, I had a four bedroom house. I had motorcycles, snow machines, multiple cars, a dog, a fiance. Like right. I, I lost, I, I lost, I got out of prison with the sweatsuit and new balance shoes that I could buy on commissary. <laughs> oh like gosh. I had no ID. I had to use my prison ID to get on the plane. Like I had to use that as a form of identification. Yeah. Luckily in in Kodiak at the time, the DMV, like I went to the DMV because the town is so small, like the the lady knew me. And that was the only way that I was able to get a freaking driver's license was because she was like, I know, I know it's you. And I know you're not trying to port, you know? So, (laughs) and you know, if I could give like one piece of advice for somebody that is stuck and is struggling, if there's any way for you to just remove yourself removing myself like I was on a plane like two hours after after getting out of prison I was on a plane and I was out of there there was no a lot of the temptation was immediately removed and I had fantastic support and, and my, my parents too like when I got locked up for that last time they were like good luck like you put yourself here which I did and it was probably the best thing that they could have done and God, what I put them through in that time. Like, I can't, I can't even fathom what that's like. So I have a lot of people come to me and they're like, Oh my God, my kid is doing X, Y, Z. And I'm like, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. Just know, like, they're not doing it on purpose to hurt you. Like, cause there's so many people that are a factor in, in the situation of our choices. One person could make in their addiction. That's really could affect, you know, families across. Right. It so just affects so many people, but addiction it's, it's not taken into account. Like when I was running around, I certainly wasn't thinking about my parents. I was thinking about what I was doing to get my high. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. You know, uh, there's some research out there around like, you know, neuroscience and how addiction impacts the brain and, uh, like the dopamine that we get from drugs or alcohol, uh, it like it supersedes the the dopamine that we get from anything else uh whether it be our basic needs like food and water because we do get like hits of dopamine when we eat food um and it supersedes like uh kind of our just yeah any anything else so um those of us in active addiction like it's important for people to to realize that that it's not just this like moral failing and that we are out there intentionally trying to hurt the people close to us. It's just like, 
the chemicals and the chemistry in our brain has been like rewired as a result of using substances that like all that matters is that we need that dopamine fix, which I've been learning a little bit about dopamine dumping, which is a pretty cool concept, but might be a little extreme for me, but uh, it helps people appreciate the simple things a little more when you sort of like remove all the, the dopamine enhancers that are in our life, like social media and genetically modified foods and all that stuff. Um, Yeah. We just, we want everything uh, enhanced, but um, I know uh, we kind of, we're getting a little low on time, but before we kind of start to wrap up, like, I want to hear a little bit more about this company that you work for. Cause it sounds like, did you say you were making a seven figure fal- uh, salary or six? No. So I make a six figure salary with pure romance, but I run a seven figure organization. So there's me and then my downline that collectively, which goes up to five levels deep. We did over a million dollars in sales last year. Oh, wow. Yeah. This year we're on track to be about 1.25 and then I'll be serving on the senior board of director, senior board of directors instead of board of directors. So it's just another position of prestige where you just have a bigger voice with the company and honest to God, like, thank God they don't do background checks. And I know that sounds funny, but like, I could not imagine being turned down for, for that because man, I, pure romance was my calling in life. Like mm-hmm. not to toot my horn, but like, I'm good at it. I mean, I know, I know we're on zoom and people on the podcast can't see, but like you see the shelves up there, of like the rows of trophies. That's like, that's oh, all right. That's all from doing my, my business wow. and been globally recognized with the company for almost my entire career because all I know is extreme. All that's like all I know. Go bigger, go home. Go bigger, go home. And, and I love to be my own competition. So like that, that's another thing. It's like, I, my goal was to beat what I did the year before every single year, because I mean, your best competition is you. Right. Another day, but yeah. So, and now our business with pure romance is so virtual. I haven't, I haven't done an in-home party in months and it's just a complete, it's just a completely different model. And I'll tell you what, the pandemic was probably one of the best things that could have happened for our company because we, we have a fantastic CEO that will pivot. He doesn't panic. He like, he's Mm -hmm. super smart, but like the team of people in our corporate office is also like, they're just so fantastic. It's a, it's a family. Like our culture is dope. It's a huge community of women helping women. And I, I just think it's, it's, it's a fantastic company. I know multi-level marketing gets such a bad rep because people will sign up for it and then they choose to do nothing or they expect mm-hmm. people to knock on their door and buy some shit. And that's not going to happen. And I'll right. tell the person to tell you, I grinded hard. It's, it's not an easy business. It's a very simple business and you just share products that you love, which we do anyways. Right. Like right, talking yeah. about something that you bought on Amazon, Amazon ain't paying you. And now you're sending your friends to go buy some stuff off of Amazon. We're here. Like, and honestly, like the, the majority of the products that we carry, I mean, you can kind of see back here, like all my, all my inventory right here. It's mm-hmm. a consumable product. Like, man, our shaving cream is fantastic. Our body wash is fantastic. We've got like it's stuff called miracle oil that's going to help with any cuts, scrapes, warts, cold sores. Like it, like our stuff is so good. We have sunless tanners. 
it's just stuff that makes you feel beautiful and smell fantastic. It's stuff that you use every single day that, so when people are like, oh, I'm not into that. I'm like, you don't take showers. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're all, uh, my Good opinion is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh man. No, I just think it's cool. Cause, uh, it makes me think though, too, like a lot of people that struggle with substance use learn this kind of business model of having to like, uh, be in sales. <laughs> uh, yes. So like a business model like this seems like a great opportunity for people to like find a product that they enjoy and appreciate and be able to like share about it and like, yeah, kind of make their own schedule and decide how much effort they want to put into it. You know, like they can kind of make up how many hours they make and or how many hours they work. And, you know, it's obviously going to be reflective of the income that they're bringing in. But um, yeah, because a lot of people with felony charges struggle to find like good jobs, you know, like I've worked with people at halfway houses that are like, I'm flipping burgers right now. And that's like all that I can do. Like I can't find a better job. I'm either flipping burgers or pushing shovels, you know? So it's like opportunities exist within these companies that really empower people too. And the fact that like you were able to share your story and that even like drew people to you um, just by sharing your story as a person that struggled with substances and how, you're doing now. So I, I don't know. I think it's cool. Like, yes, those MLMs get bad names. And I do think that the, like any, like any um, industry, you know, there's going to be bad apples out there for sure. But uh, I know a woman that lives here locally that like, she crushes it with her MLM. And like, I, I don't think I could do it. I have a hard time with that level of things, but <laughs> like I sell people recovery. <laughs> it doesn't cost people anything. I'm all I mean, you know, I had signed a couple of people because it's definitely not like, a, you know, MLM. It's like you sign up to do it and then you choose to do with it what you want. It's definitely not like I'm not employed by I'm a private mm-hmm. contractor for the company, of course. But you get to you get to decide, like, do I want to make any money today? Do I want to sell anything today? And the best part about it is it's legal. <laughs> and the money, like I said, right. is like way better than selling drugs. Like, and I used to drive around a huge pink van that had all my product in it. And like a pink van. <laughs> yeah, the huge pink pyramid. Like, think like big plumber's truck. Big, oh my gosh. Yeah, Dodge Pro Master, and it was wrapped in pink and black, and it said Pure Romance by Julie Salter on it, and it had had all of that inventory back there in there, so I could just pull up to someone's house, we'd go inside, we'd do the in-home party for about an hour, and then people would come out one by one, and it was a private shopping room. There's also a huge wow. advertising billboard. Right, but, yeah. But And yeah, that was all, cool. like what I chose to do because I was, I looked at it as a business. I think that's one of the biggest problems with people that join MLMs is they don't view it as a business. I wanted to, it to be a business and mm-hmm. I wanted, I had a specific goal and then I broke that big goal down into little goals. And then that that's just how I did it. It's like, I knew that I had to make $3,000 a month. Well, if I'm making 40%, I better sell over six grand a month. If I'd sell over six grand a month, I'm going to replace my income. It's a simple, it's a very simple structure. Right. And then of course there's ways to move up in the company by bringing on other people and, and those reps selling and you mm-hmm. make a small percentage of that, but they're still making dope money. Like you don't have to sponsor people by any means to, to right. go in. It's funny because I had ran across some people 
that I knew in my previous life is what I call it. And they ended up signing up and did fantastic selling products. And I'm like, hustle this, right. <laughs> like, hustle this. Like you don't have to, you can do it right in a parking lot. You can do it right in front of people. To like <laughs> partner with the writer program and then like educate people right. on these businesses so that like, yeah, if they get out and they're having a hard time finding like a legit job, that's going to actually help them take care of themselves and their families be like, absolutely. You know, I wanted to contact somebody at, it was South Boise women's correctional center. And I thought about, I thought about contacting them and being like, I would love to come there and just, and just speak to people and be like a a line and a phrase that I use often is you can always change your stars. You can always, you Mm -hmm. can always change your star, whatever you want to do or whatever, like you can always change it. And I believe that because it's what I did. Wow. That's so, such a great story. Like you were going at a young age, you were headed for a pretty bad dark future. <laughs> bad. And just, I applaud you for, yeah, making the choice. It's hard to make the choice. And then, yeah, taking the actions to like follow through on that choice. And, um, look at you now. So congrats on all of your success. And, um, I don't know, maybe I need a side hustle. Maybe I need to start selling some toys. Maybe I'll hit you up. Yeah, girl. Let's do it. Right now I don't have time. My life is like 24, seven, 365 recovery for myself and my community, which is great. Girl, self-care is a part of recovery. And that's the other thing too. It's like a, a large percentage of our partners that uh, that's what we're called. We're called partners. Partners with Pure Romance is like we're users of our products. Like mm-hmm. almost all the liquid line is like sitting in my bathroom because <laughs> I right. use it, and then I get to buy it at a discount too. So Ooh. sign up and fall in love with the products, and then someone will be like, "Oh my god, you smell amazing!" You're like, "Yeah, it's this," and they're like, "Hey, I want some of that. Cool, here's my link," and then they just buy it, and you just make a commission check. I mean, if nothing else, like I'm buying my shaving cream at fifty percent, fifty percent off, and all my body oil and all my, all my smell goods. Maybe I'll need to check that out. It sounds like a good uh, thing. I like to travel too. So I'm like, who knows? Maybe I could supplement my travel account, my trip account with uh, toys and products. The best part is toys and products with me on vacation. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta take care of me. (laughs) Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Oh man. Well, we better wrap up. Um, but I did just, I want to give, uh, well, first I've got a question for you. Um, and I ask all my guests, uh, you know, what, what does recovery mean to you? That's such a good question. And I've never, identified as a person in recovery. I, I do talk about my sobriety from my addiction, but I, I never really adopted the word recovery. Hmm. Recovery in my brain feels like it's something that I'm actively trying to do. And it's withstanding from doing drugs is not an active part of my day anymore. Like I was in recovery my, the main part of my recovery was probably sitting in prison and making my decision to like, not go back down that road, but it's never been something that I've 
actively tried to withstand from because something about making that choice the day that I got arrested, like it, the desire for it left, like mm-hmm. losing my freedom. That's why a lot of people like when, when they, I've had people reach out to me and I've done like interventions with people, a couple of my friends and their, their kids and whatnot. And they go, what do I do, Julie? I don't know what to do. And I go call the cops. I'm like, that was the only thing that ever stopped me. Like wow. my family tried to get me to go to a rehab center in Texas. And I told them to go F themselves. Like I, there, there was nothing going to stop me. And until I was cuffed until I was cuffed and stuffed, <laughs> it was, I wasn't going to stop. And so a lot of times, like I recommend that people do use the system because when you are put into a jail cell and you can't get to your fix, like you're, you're going to find a way. And I know, of course, there's a lot of drugs that you shouldn't cold Turkey off like that. that are extremely mm-hmm. dangerous and whatnot. And, and those resources aren't always readily available, but the people that I've talked to that were struggling, it was usually not, I don't want to say it was minor by any means because it's not, but a lesser of the extremes. I'm like, call the cops. Like there should be consequences for actions. And that the consequences of my actions led me to, to where I went. And it was, it saved my life. It saved my life. That's powerful. I mean, you know, any port in a storm and you're not the first person that I've heard that like incarceration has been part of the process towards recovery. Um, I just also though want to mention like you had access to that restorative program Mm -hmm. um, that, I mean, it sounds like it helped give you an opportunity because who knows, you know, if you spent seven years in prison and just did your hard time like that, like who knows what would have happened when you came out. I mean. I know. (laughs) Like I think, I do think about that often too. And, and it's crazy because of course, in the moment I'm like, uh, like I knew about the writer program before I went on it just because my ex had gone through it. And it's like, you hear about, you know, people that are using still that are buying shit from you that, that had like just got off of a writer program. So I was familiar with what the program was all about. Um, a lot of them were more men that had gone through the program. So it was a, a different facility, but same concept. Right. But, but honestly, like, there's tools that I learned there that I still, I still used. I mean, one of the biggest things that I think that was, it is a part of recovery that people struggle with and why they'll fall back into old habits and use again is rewarding yourself for sobriety by using. And I, you know, and I had done that and that was something in that thinking for a change class. It's like, that's not like a good way to think. And to reward yourself a different way. Cause there had been times in that three years that I was using really heavily that I'd be like, Oh man, we would be clean for like three months, my ex and I, and I'm like, Oh, we've been so good. Let's get high. Like <laughs> it was, and like, God, how toxic of a way of thinking is that? Right. So, and then when I had, I told you I had caught that petty theft charge that my probation officer, her name is Jill, fantastic human. At the time she was like, what were you thinking? Like you had three grand in the bank from working. And I go, well, I felt like I deserved it for being so good. I felt like I deserved to have that stuff for free. And she was like, that's, I think you need to do some outpatient therapy. And I'm like, you're probably right. (laughs) So I did, I did more outpatient therapy while I was on probation, but. Good thing you had a probation officer to tell you that. She was fantastic. And she, what, what's really cool. It's like, I'll, when I would run into her in Alaska, when I still lived there, that 
I saw, I ran into her at Costco one day and I was like, Jill, like who runs up and hugs their PO? Like me, <laughs> Louis Salter does. And she's like, oh my God, like you're doing so great. And she looked at me with last time I seen her and she goes, you're my success story. She goes, you're the success story that I get to tell people about and give them hope. And I'm like, my God, like what a compliment that is. Cause she, I know that she's been in that industry for a long time and to be that notch in her belt felt really good too. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that, that makes me really happy. Cause, uh, just, you know, not, not every probation officer cares. There's a lot of them that do, but, um, it definitely feels good to hear stories of, yeah, like they're out there. Um, so thanks for sharing that. And, and I totally respect, you know, not identifying as a person in recovery. Like I identify as a person in recovery because I kind of utilize it as like a way to elevate the conversation and share hope and share my story. Um, but like, I mean, it sounds like in your case, you know, like you're not running away from anything. Like you're running towards something and you're like, that's not even, that's not even who I am. So why am I going to keep nodding my head to it? So I think that's awesome. Like, and your path to a substance free life or, um, I guess a little bit. Yeah. But at least away from the substances you were using, um, like it's empowering, it's inspiring, it's incredible. And I just, yeah, congratulate you on all of your success. Um, before we close out though, I just would like, uh, if anybody's interested in like getting involved with the multi-level marketing that you do through pure romance, uh, is there a way, should people contact you directly or just go to the website or? Oh yeah. Uh, hit me up. My uh, easy way for me to find me is probably by Instagram. So it's at, and it's Julie underscore Salter. You'll see on my Instagram profile, it's all my fitness profile. Mm -hmm. However, like that's just the easiest way for people to find me. You can also find me on like Snapchat, Julie Ann Salter, J-U-L-I-E-A-N-N-S-A-L-T-E-R. I'm on Snapchat a lot as well. You can also find me on Facebook. However, there's probably 900 Julie Salters, which I <laughs> decided that, which I decided that I friended all of them on Facebook and we're homies. <laughs> yeah. like a club. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's super fun. Um, club. Yeah, exactly. So, but you can find me on there. Um, but Instagram is going to be the easiest way. So at Julie underscore Salters, S-A-L-T-E-R. Oh, cool. Hit me up, ask me questions. Like you can follow my fitness journey on there and I'm doing a bikini competition this year for my first time. So I really dove head first into the all realms, all realms of the fitness world. So I'm super excited for that. But um, yeah, I look forward to hearing from some people just because I think it humanizes recovery and it humanizes the fact like there, there is hope and there is, there is something better. There is something better than where you're sitting out with addiction and mm -hmm. that feeling of there's no hope. There's hope. Mm -hmm. There is. Yeah. Aw. Oh. Very special. Well, and uh, all of your, yeah, like social media, uh, we'll have those in the, in the show notes. So uh, you can just sort of like copy paste and plug those into those platforms and find Julie. Um, so incredible story. I'm so, I'm really proud of you for turning it around. Like making that decision at such a young age is awesome. And then just the success that you've had since then. So uh great work and 
Yeah. Thanks again for joining us and sharing your story. Um, yeah. So once again, I'm your host, Candace Rose. New episodes are available to stream every other Wednesday as early as 5 a.m. And you can tune in on November 17th when Donald Davis joins me. He's the co-founder of the Kentucky Harm Reduction Coalition. And he visits us to discuss all the amazing work he's doing in Kentucky to reduce harm and help keep people alive until they're ready to navigate towards their paths of recovery. So definitely check that out. As always, here at YPR, we do recover and we are in your corner. Thanks for listening.